All right, so body of Christ today, we're back like always in Ephesians chapter two. And um, if you recall last week, I said, we're probably gonna revisit these verses again. <laughs> Remember Sister Judy? I said, I just don't feel like God is, is through me here in, in teaching this text. And so, um, yes, we are back here again in Ephesians chapter two, looking at verse 13 to 17. So we add two more verses to what we looked at last week. And if you recall last week, I was encouraging you to, uh, matter of fact, before we go there, let's just pray before we dig into the word. Let me stop back up. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this word, your word, God, that we are approaching, God, that we are opening, Lord, to see your voice, to hear your voice, to get your thoughts, Lord. Sanctify us by your word, God. Help answer the questions that we have through your scripture, God. Bring us closer to yourself, Lord. Will you reveal your truths, God, as to my brothers and sisters, Lord, as you've been doing to me uh, this week, God, filling me with joy, changing me, correcting me, God, showing me things that I haven't seen before. Work through your word, Lord God. Sanctify your people, God. Make them more like your son, Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you recall last week, I was encouraging you to be a frequent flyer to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? I was encouraging you to be a frequent flyer to Jerusalem. Not literally, I'm saying, but fig figuratively. What I meant by that is you need to often, as you can, visit Galgotha or visit Calvary to go and reflect on the cross. So that's what I mean by being a frequent flyer to Galgotha. You want to constantly go there and stare at the cross and remember who Jesus is and what he has done. So I was encouraging you last week, you know, take frequent visits to the cross, frequent visits to Galgotha. This week, I also want to encourage you to take another visit to Golgotha, our Calvary's Mountain Hill. But this week, I want you to look at something different. This week, we're going to look at something different. Same cross, same Lord, same God. But I want you to see this second element, which I will get to a little bit later, that I want you to look at. So I'll, I'll, get you, I'll bring you up there once we get there. But we're going to look at the cross. But from a different perspective, I guess you would say. Last week we looked at the, the cross, um, it was more of a boots on the ground view, I guess you would say. We were looking at the, the Jew and the Gentile, the hostility that, we, that, that has been there in the first century. So it was more of a boots on the ground, but today um, we're gonna look at unity, like we looked at unity last week, but we're gonna look at it from a 10,000 foot or a God perspective, I guess you would say. We're gonna look at a God's eye view of the cross. Last week was more of a boots on the ground view of the cross. This one is gonna be more of a God's eye view, I guess you would say. And the title, as I gave to my brother Fernando, the title of today's message is The Forgotten Victory of the Cross, How the Gospel Sets the Dinner Table and Brings Unity Among the Nations. And that is Ephesians 2, 14 through 17, or 13 through 17. Let's read there. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. But now, remember this is Paul. He's talking to these Gentile Ephesians. He has reminded them that who they used to be prior to cross, that they were called uncircumcised by these circumcised, right? So he's reminding them of who they used to be and now who they are in Christ. So in 13 he says, but now in Christ... Jesus, you who formerly in the past were far off or far from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
That's how you've been brought near. For he himself, Christ Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, meaning the active hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity, the active hostility, the enmity. So for this new subject, it's going to require us to kind of recap what we went over last week to kind of bring you up to speed so you can see the connection here. So I'm just going to give you a probably extended summary of last week. So last week, we looked at how through the cross, how through the cross, one body, God reconciles man to man. How did he do that? We seen last week, he removed the barrier that separated one nation from the other nation. Remember the Jew and the Gentile. That's what Paul was talking about here, how he has, he has tore down that dividing wall, right? And so that's what we looked at last week, how God has tore down that dividing wall. And dividing wall was the law contained in ordinance. Why? Because God had gave the nation of Israel, they were given the oracles of God and commandments, right? They were given the oracles of God and commandments. And these laws and commandments would, would be the things that would separate Israel from all other nations. And with these laws that, that God had created, you had the elders in Israel at the time in the first century, they would actually go and create additional laws to separate Israel from the nation. One of those such laws were the ceremonial hand washing. That wasn't really required in the law, but it was something that the elders would go and they would create. So God had already established these laws that had separated Israel from the other nations, but then the elders would come behind and create other new laws that would further separate Israel and, and people from other people. And that's part of what we discuss. Now this separation between Israel and the nation uh, are the pure and the unpure was exemplified by the Sorek. The Sorek was that inner boundary wall. Remember we talked about the Gentile court at the temple? So in, in the second temple, there was this wall called the Sorek. It was the inner boundary wall that separated the inner holy places of the temple from the common places of the temple, right? The common place of the temple in the first century was known as the Gentile court. So you had this, the first century temple, you had this huge temple, you had the holies of holies in the inner parts of the temple, but on the outside of the temple, you had this huge court that Gentiles were allowed to go into. And you really couldn't go no further. Only a, a true Jew could go beyond the sword, beyond that dividing wall. It can go into the inner places of the temple. So it, was, it would require a, a true Jew or someone who was pure. If you were unpure, you could not go past this, this wall. We also discussed last week how we have created, naturally, in our human flesh, we have created additional Gentile courts to divide ourselves from each other. These courts are now political parties. Those are now Gentile courts that we have created for ourselves to separate ourselves. We've created other Gentile courts from um, such as political ideologies. These are another little groups and clusters that we have used to separate ourselves from ourselves. The other Gentile court that we have created is culture. We, we've used that to, to separate ourselves. Race, ethnicity, these are all little Gentile courts that we have created to separate ourselves but in one body 
In his flesh, Jesus tears down the dividing wall. He abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances by one first, fulfilling them for us, then nailing them to the cross along with all the other ways and all the things that we use to discriminate and separate ourselves, including racism and stereotypes. Those are some of the things we looked at last week. By nailing the law contained in ordinances to the cross, Jesus sets a new way of salvation, um, a, a, a new way, if you will, of holiness and purity and access to God that was now made known as opposed to the law being the barrier or the gate that separated the nations, the pure from the unpure. Jesus is now the gate. All Jews and Gentiles are now made pure through him. Salvation is gained through him. Access to God is now get granted through him. Jesus has now really become the Sorek. He's become the gate from the pure and unpure. He becomes the way that you can now have access to God. And now since Jews and Gentiles are both made clean and have access to God through Jesus, we find our unity we find our commonality in one, our shared sin, because we recognize that we are all fallen. And because of that, we are separated from God. But we also find our unity and commonality in that we all find our right standing, our righteousness, our justification through Christ, through Christ. So through one body, one cross, peace is made, or is made available to mankind. And that is the peace and unity that we have now today in Christ. And this now brings us to our title of today. So that was a quick summary of last week. Now this brings us to our title of today, the forgotten victory of the cross, how the gospel sets the dinner table and brings unity among the nations. Now, let me start this way. Typical motivations for Christians to go out and evangelize, share the gospel, whether domestically or internationally, the typical motivation or the common thought is the salvation of the nations, right? That, that is why we go out. We want to see people saved. We want to see people coming to Christ. We want them to know the light of God. We want people escaping hell. We want to see more people glorifying and worshiping the God that we love. And guess what? These are all good. These are all right. These are all holy motivations. But I want to remind you of another thing, the forgotten thing, I would say, that should be motiv motivating us to knock on our neighbor's door, to knock on the door of a stranger, to hand out gospel tracts or whatever type of evangelism you do. And that other motivation should be the hope of unity among all peoples, all cultures, background, ethnicities, the nations, and the ending of hostility. That should also be a motivation for us sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus. The, the disunity that we're seeing in the world should so bother us. We should not be comfortable with all the stuff that's happening in the world. It should really bother us when we see all of this disunity. And it should really encourage us more to want to tell people about Jesus, right? Because we, we know that he is the way. See, our brothers and sisters, what we have to start doing when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to evangelism, is looking at the cross, looking at the gospel from a God's eye perspective. Looking at the gospel from a, a God's eye perspective. And what I mean is this. If I only, if I look at the cross... And all I see 
is salvation. I've said this many times. All I see is salvation from my personal sins. Guess what? That does nothing for unity among the nations and the ending of hostility. If I just look at the cross solely from a personal perspective of my personal sin, that, that doesn't do great efforts for the unity of the nation and the ending of hostility. And we know this for a fact because we've seen this play out all throughout history, U.S. history and world history. We have seen many great Christians, great preachers, great evangelists, great theologians who saw the cross only as a means of salvation. And because they only saw the cross as a means of salvation, it had minor to no effect on how they treated their neighbor or people who did not look like them, talk like them, act like them, or vote like them. Why? Because they seen the gospel strictly from a a salvation standpoint. But here in this letter, here comes that fly again from last week. <laughs> He's back. But here in this letter, in this section of Ephesians, verse 13 to 17, guess what? Paul does not just point to the cross as a means of salvation, man being reconciled to God. But Paul in these verses 13 to 7 also shows how the same cross reconciles man to man. So in verse 13 through 15, look at that. Verse 13 through 15 in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, But now in Christ, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who have made both groups into one and broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So in those verses right there, 13 to 15, Paul is showing how through one body, one cross, men or men are reconciled. He's showing how men and men can be reconciled. One body, one cross. But then when you go down to verse 16 to 17, he's showing how through that same body, that same cross, God and men are reconciled. Do you see that in verse 16? So verse 13 to 15, he is focusing on man and man's reconciliation, having peace with one another, Jew and Gentile. And then in verse 16 through 17, he is focusing on man and God being reconciled. He's talking about that act of hostility. So he's, he's addressing both hostilities, man's hostility towards one another and man's hostility towards God. And he's showing how through one body, one Christ, both are reconciled. So in other words, Paul is showing us how the gospel or the cross of Christ helps us to obey the two greatest commandments. What are the two greatest commandments? And, and what else? There you go. The two greatest commandments, Paul is showing us how the gospel works to help us do that. He's showing how the gospel helps us to love God, which is chief, which is number one. But second is what? To love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Those are the two commandments. You fulfill that, you fulfill all of the law. That's what the Bible states. So he's showing us in one cross, one body, Man and man are reconciled. Mankind, mankind, that's reconciled. Man and God are reconciled. One body, one Christ. So that means that when the Father looks at the cross, he is not just seeing man being reconciled to himself. When the Father, when God looks at the cross, 
he is seeing man and man being reconciled as well. See, that's what I mean, looking at the cross, looking at the gospel from a God's eye perspective. Because guess what? Both were lost in the fall with Adam and Eve, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, both were lost. Man's relationship with God, that was lost. There was a separation. But what we find right after Eve, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, what happens next? What happens in the following chapter? Think about it. Come on, Bible scholars. Cain and Abel. What happened? Cain then kills his brother, Abel. They get booted out. Man and God, that, that separation is gone. Cain goes and kills his brother, Abel. Now you see the hostility between man and man. So that is my point. Like you have to see the gospel from God's perspective. Both of those were lost in the garden. But now through one body, through one cross, now peace can be in both of those. Both of them are now reconciled to the gospel. There's now unity when there was separation all through one body and one cross. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. Did you know or do you, do you understand the importance or how much it means to God to see his people unified as one body? Because as we're seeing in this text, the objective of the gospel was one, yes, to reconcile man to God. But we also see that a chief aim or chief motive of the gospel is man being reconciled to man. That God cares about unity so much that his purpose or aim for sending his son to die on the cross is yes, man and man being reconciled. But also seeing us reconciled to our fellow man or woman. Did you know that the gospel has that aim, has that purpose, that that is part of the gospel that we preach, seeing people come together in unity in Christ. That's one of the, op that's one of the purposes of the gospel that we preach, that we tell people about. It's the unity of the nations. It's, it's the unity of people from different cultures and groups coming together, the ending of hostility and finding their union as one in Christ. And how do we know that? Let me show you, look at verse 15. Look at verse 15 in the text. When you look at verse 16 and 15 in the text, I want you to ask yourself, what is the aim for which Christ is abolishing the law and commandments and ordinance? Look what he says in verse 15 here. So remember, verse 15 is talking about this wall that had divided Jew and Gentile. But look what he says here in 15. He says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, now remember, come on, when we see this word, so that, what is that so that telling us? Look at verse 15. He's give, now he's giving us the purpose for which Christ is abolishing that dividing wall that caused hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now he's giving us the aim of which Christ would go and abolish that in his flesh on the cross. So he's giving us a purpose of the gospel. So he says, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing what peace peace so now we see the motive for which God is going and removing the law and bringing these hostile groups who were hostile towards one another Jew and Gentile he's squashing the beef and he's bringing them together to create one to bring unity this is oneness He's given us a motive. Why? He, he wants unity amongst the body. He wants unity amongst the nations. 
That's, that's part of the aim of the gospel. That's why Christ is going and abolishing the law, the law being a way of salvation, the law being the way to holiness, the law being the way to, um, to righteousness. He's going and he's removing that out the way. He's nailing to the cross. And now he's saying that I'm the way and it's through me now that you can have peace. So he's now, he's given us an aim for which he is destroying that barrier. He wants to see unity amongst these groups who were hostile towards one another. So that tells me that God really cares about unity. He cares that we are one, us in Christ. That, that matters to God. It's not just a minor little thing that, oh, let's just only focus on personal salvation, personal salvation. Yes, that is important, but God also cares about the unity of his body. He cares about the unity of people. So Paul is showing us that, yes, that is a major thing that we must understand. Now, something else I want you to see here in this text. When you're reading this, this, this section of Ephesians 13 to 17, we must understand that when Paul is referring to Jew and Gentile, remember, all of the world is made up of Jew and Gentile, at least from the biblical perspective. You're in one or the other category. Either you are Jewish or you are Gentile. These are the categories that, that Paul is using, right? And so when Paul is, how do I say this? Let me, let me back up. Okay, here we go. So Paul is using broad categories here when he says Jew and Gentile. Because I really wanna, I really wanna make this clear because this is very important. So he's using broad categories because all of the world can fit in Jew, the Jew boat or the, the Gentile boat. So when he's saying Jew or Gentile, he's really speaking of all of the hostilities in the world. So when, when, you, when we see hostility here, how Paul is using it in the text in verse 15, where he says that he's abolishing in this flesh the enmity, the hostility that Paul is talking about right there in the first century, he's talking about the, the Jew and Gentile divide. So these Ephesians were dealing with the hostility that they would get from other Jews, right? Other Jews would look at these Gentile Ephesians and they would say, hey, you're not one of us. You're not pure. You're not clean. And so they treated them as other. So the issue that Paul or these Gentiles are, are experiencing is this hostility that they would get from Jew and Gentile. But guess what? You and I, we've never experienced this hostility that a, a Gentile Ephesian would experience or even the, the matter that Paul is addressing. See, we, we've never had to deal with somebody treating us as other or treating us different because we weren't Jewish. That is a matter, that is a hostility that is totally foreign to us. That is something that is totally different to us. We have never experienced it. So that's why when we read this text in Ephesians and Paul is talking about the hostility between Jew and Gentile, it, it really makes no sense to us because we're like, I've never been in this situation. I don't know how it feels to be discriminated against because I'm not Jewish or how to be treated as other because other people think I'm not pure. So, so this hostility that Paul is talking about is really specific and it's really de defined to the first century. But because it's defined to the first century doesn't mean that God doesn't have a word for us and that it doesn't address us. And what I mean by that is, yes, I have never experienced the hostility of being treated as other because I'm not Jew. But guess what? I have experienced hostility in the form of racism, right? I have ex experienced hostility in the form of racism from other people. And that hostility that, that was shown towards me, it also triggered some hostility from me towards him. But guess what? 
But Christ dealt with that hostility in the flesh on the cross as well, not just the Jew and Gentile hostility. That, that is the point that I want you to see. So it's not that the gospel is only dealing with that first century hostility between Jew and Gentile, but just how Jew and Gentile are used in second uh, in Ephesians to be representative of all people. This hostility that God deals with at the cross is also representative of all hostility between all people and all time how Christ and his gospel deals with all of it. He deals with all of it. So guess what? Now let me explain it to you this way. Within the first century, right? All right, let me back up. Where am I at here? Okay, here we go. With the first century Jew and Gentile divide, the hostility we see here surrounded the law, right? The Mosaic law. The, the commandments and the ordinances and all those th different things. Why? Because for a first century Jew, the law, the law of Moses, the commandment, what we see in Leviticus, that was all in all. The law of Moses, the law of Leviticus, that was everything. That was your life. That is how you lived. Your whole life was surrounded and focused on this law, the law of Moses. It, it affected how you treated people. It affected how you tithed. It affected if you, if you can touch something, if you touched the dead body, you were considered unclean. If a woman was on her cycle, she was unclean. She couldn't do certain things. So, so this law, it literally was your all in all. It controlled every part of you. And for many first century Orthodox Jews, they revered the law so much to where the law was almost worshipped. But when Christ comes and fulfills the law and he removes the Mosaic law, he basically says that this law that you were clinging to is no longer all in all. But I am all in all. It's no longer the law that you need to be righteous before God. It is no longer the law that's going to make you pure before God. It's no longer the law that's going to make you accepted before God. But because I have filled the law and I have resurrected from the dead, showing that I have beat death, I am now all in all. I am your source. It is not no longer the law that you look to for life. It is no longer the law that you make your all in all. It is now me. I'm the source. And in the same way, what he does with the law, he also takes the thing that has caused hostility in our cultures. Some of those things are race. That has caused division and hostility in our culture. Other things is culture itself. You have black culture. You have uh, Latin culture. You have politics. You have nationality. All of these have been causes of division and hostility between people groups. But at the cross, you know what Christ says? Just like he says with the law is not all in all, and he proves it by his resurrection, he also is saying that race is not all in all, that color is not all in all, that nationality is not all in all, that politics is not all in all, but I, Christ, I am all in all. I am what matters most. So the same thing that he does with the law by removing that hostility between Jew and Gentile, he now does with all other hostilities. Because people who want to divide people on race, they make race all in all, just like the Jews were making the law all in all. So there are people who want to divide us along political lines. Why? They make political lines all in all as it's the main thing. But the same thing that God does with the law by removing it out the way and saying, no, I am all in all. Christ said, that's what I am when it comes to all of these other divisions. Where Christ is saying that I'm the major focal point. I'm the one that you need to look at. It is not these little sub things that you get so distracted on that's causing division in the nation and in the world. No, they don't matter. But I am the central thing. I am the most important thing. See, Christ, he deals with all of our hostilities. 
And because he deals with them, that is how he now makes us one. He removes the things that we use as division. He removes them out the way and replaces them with himself and said, this is how you're unified. It's no longer race, culture. It's no longer all these things you're thinking about, but it is me. It is and through me that you now find your unity. That's it. It's through Christ that we now find our unity. Let me remind you of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 regarding unity. Because Paul has already addressed this, but I just want to show you so you can see the importance of unity here. Paul says this here in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 through 10. He says, and I'm going to read it to you, matter of fact, from the ESB because it makes it a little clear. This is a really difficult text. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, regarding unity, this is what Paul says. He says, making known to us, or God has made known to us, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here goes our key word. To unite, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is the mystery of God's overarching will to unite all things in Christ, things in the earth and things in heaven. That is the overarching will of God in all things is to unite all things, things on the earth and things in heaven, in Christ and under Christ. The things on earth, guess what? That, the, the, the things on earth that finds its unity and fullness in Christ. That's us. We are the things on earth that find our unity and fullness in Christ us other people other nations god is bringing all people whoa that's a big one there we go so god is bringing all people from all tribes all tongues all nations and he's bringing us together and he's making us one in christ that is the unity on the earth that god is working and doing through the gospel and he's doing it through christ but then god is also going to bring all of the heavenly realms and he's going to bring the heavenly realm and the earthly realm and they're going to collide and come to one where you have the heavenly realm and the earthly realm coming together see that that is really what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be it's going to be the heavenly realm the heavenly creatures that we'll look at a little bit in Revelation 7 and the earthly realm those who, who have been made in the image of God now colliding and finding their unity and their oneness in Christ Jesus that that is what our new heavens and that is what our new earth was going to look like this colliding this this unity of heaven and earth forever in Christ and if you recall when I preached this text before in Ephesians 1 we went to Revelations where we can actually see a picture of this heaven and earth colliding unity. Let me show you again. Go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. And I want to show you the heavenly unity that I'm talking about here. So let me read it to you. John says this, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. Look, here goes the heavenly, the earthly portion right here. Check this out. Which no one can count from every nation of all tribes, people, tongues, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothes in white robes, palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that first description we see, we have this image in heaven where you have people 
from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They are in heaven. They are worshiping God. They are praising the Lord. Now look what happens next. Look at the heavenly group now we're going to see. And, verse 11, and all of the angels, now we're talking about the heavenly stuff right now. Here are the heavenly creatures. And all of the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, which could be the heavenly or men, depending on how you look at that word. And the four living creatures, these are the heavenly creatures, they fell on their face before the throne, worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. What are we seeing there, brothers and sisters? In that one text, we are seeing the fulfillment of that first verse that I just read for you in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 9-10. We are seeing heaven and earth coming together in unity. And what are they doing? They are worshiping God. They are worshiping the Lamb. You are seeing image bearers, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You are seeing angels. You are seeing the heavenly creatures. And they're all doing one thing in unity. They are worshiping the Lamb. They are worshiping God. Do you see this heaven and earth collision that is taking place right here? See, that, that is the unity that God wants. That, that, that unity matters to God, brothers and sisters. We see it happening right there in Revelation. We see God saying he's going to do it in Ephesians chapter 1. Unity matters to God, my brothers and sisters. It matters that you and I in Christ, that we are one. It matters. So let me ask you the question again that I initially posed. When you think about Jesus' death on the cross, do you think about your personal sins only? Or in addition to this, do you see the cross as the unifier of all tribes, tongues, and nations? You got to look at the cross from a God perspective, remember? Not just from my own personal salvation perspective, but from a God perspective who also sees, again, reconciliation between all people in Christ. That's a God perspective. See, oftentimes when I go out and I'm sharing the gospel with a person, guess what? Eight out of ten times, all I'm thinking about is salvation, their salvation. When I'm going and knocking on a door, I'm trying to share the gospel, I am thinking about their salvation. The other two times, I'm generally thinking about, well, maybe this person is addicted to drugs and or por pornography and, and Christ can set them free. So that's also a motivation that I have that maybe they're in bondage to some sin and I know that Christ can set them free. So that's, that's also one of the motivations that I have. Or, or the other motivation that I'll have when I'm going and I'm sharing the gospel is I'm thinking that maybe the old Jerome who was enslaved in sin is behind one of these doors, right? So when I, when I knock, I'm thinking that maybe my old self, how I used to be, is behind one of those doors. But now, since we see that the primary means of the gospel is man reconciled to God and man reconciled to man, then I should be thinking maybe one of my brothers and sisters who God has chosen from the foundation of the world is behind one of these doors. See, we have to have a prodigal son mentality of looking for the lost brother or sister. See, that changes your perspective on evangelism. I hope you see that I'm trying to point out the intersection of evangelism and unity in the world how they go hand in hand. They're not separate things. That's the perspective we have to have. So through the cross, God is seeing me and him being reconciled. But also through the cross, God is seeing former enemies who were hostile towards one another, finding unity in Christ 
and guess what? And doing such things as sitting down and having a meal together. You're like, where did this meal part come from, Brother Jerome? I don't get that. Do you know that one of the major events that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth is a meal together? Do you know that? Eating? That's one of the major highlights that you should be looking forward is eating with your brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is one of the, the major events. In the, in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, this event is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Let me read it to you in Revelation 9.19. This is what the Word of God says. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the Marriage Supper of the, the Lamb. Think about what a marriage is. What is a marriage? A marriage is a celebration of two people doing what? Becoming one, right? Unity. So marriage is a unity, unifying event. And at this event, how is it generally celebrated? It is celebrated with eating, right? So that's why this is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an event where we are coming together. It's Christ and the church. This is the wedding and we're now coming together and there's food that seems to be involved. There's, there's eating. Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11 also speaks of, the, of another unifying event that involves eating. Now this event may also be the marriage supper of the Lamb and I'm not really going to get into to that debate. But Jesus says in Matthew 8:11 this. This is what the Lord says. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table. Other translations will say will feast at the table or recline at the table means to sit down and have a meal to eat. So he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table to eat with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer, outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. With this statement, Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, there is going to be many non-Jews or Gentiles having a unifying meal with the patriarchs. Do you see that? With the patriarchs. See, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will be sharing a meal with people from all over the world. That's one of the highlights of heaven, that we can sit together in unity and fellowship and eat together. I love how the Lord points that out. Now, here's the good news in all of that that I've, that I've said. The good news is that you don't have to wait for the new heavens and new earth to experience this event. The good news is that you can begin experiencing this event right now. Because check this out, when a person comes to Christ, guess what? When a person comes to Christ, it not only means that the kingdom of God has expanded, not only means that the kingdom of God has expanded, but it also means that another kitchen table has opened up for fellowship to the glory of God. That's what also that means when a person comes to Christ. I mean, now another home has opened up. Another kitchen table has now opened up for fellowship to the glory of God. When I think about fellowships uh, or our kitchen tables opening up to the glory of God and seeing the unity there, you know what I think about? I think about the time when we met the missionaries at Anani Mills House. I know they're not here, but we had some missionaries come. Um... And we met at Anna and Emil's house, and we had such a great time. 
I mean, to the point where we were laughing, we were crying with tears of laughter because we were laughing at, like, I would tell them about my culture, they'll tell me about their culture, and they were trying to teach me how to say different words in their language, and, and I did, just didn't get it. And we're all just cracking up, dying laughing, tears coming down our face. But we're having this unity, this fellowship as we begin to eat food. And guess what? At that one table at Anani Mills house, you had the missionaries where one was from Israel. The other two were, were from one of the Scandinavian countries. You had my wife with Mexican heritage. You had Jerome with African roots. You had Anna from Uzbekistan. And you had Emil from, I forget where Emil's from. Romania. Romania. All at one table, you had, all, you had all these nations, all these people with different tongues, one table eating a meal, enjoying one another's company to the glory of God. See, that is something that pleases God. That is a unifying event. That's why it matters when we come together in unity and we sit down and have a meal. That, that is a heavenly reality that, that, we're, that we're replicating. We're replicating the new heavens and new earth. It, it matters. Even think about Peter and Cornelius. I know we looked at that last week, Acts chapter 10. Peter and Cornelius. What did the gospel preach do when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Well, the gospel preached to Cornelius and his family. It brought Cornelius and his family into the kingdom of God. Man reconciled to God. But the gospel also opened up Cornelius's kitchen table to Peter. Man reconciled to man. Peter could now have a nice Roman meal with his brother in the faith. Peter could now, to the glory of God, sit down and enjoy all the uniqueness of Cornelius as he sat there and they discussed Jesus over a meal. See, you see how the gospel opened that up? You see how the gospel brought about this unity between Jew and Gentile, this hostility, how the gospel first opened up, brought Cornelius' family into the kingdom, and then it brought this man-in-man -man reconciliation where we can sit down and have a meal together. Because if you remember, the problem that the church in Jerusalem had with Peter when he went and preached the gospel to the Gentile was what? That he ate with uncircumcised men, which tells you that Peter and Cornelius likely shared a meal together. And not only that, it's likely that Peter actually stayed around for a couple days at Cornelius' house. Because in Acts chapter 10, verse 48, the last verse, it says that Cornelius' family was asking Peter to stay for a few days. So that means Peter probably hung out there with Cornelius, eating all these nice Gentile meals, all these nice Roman meals to the glory of God, though. That's the beauty of it, to the glory of God with his brother sitting there experiencing the glory that we will one day experience in heaven. He's experiencing right there at the kitchen table. And that is the same glory, that's the same experience that we can actually have when we come together in unity and have a fellowship meal together. So brothers and sisters, we can do that now. Don't got to wait to the new heavens and the new earth. Now this last point I want to bring out is this. The topic that was given to me for the sermon next week at the Harbor Church is, uh, I wrote it here, living unified in Christ, there we go, amidst a time of cultural disunity. And basically it's like, how do you do that, right? Easy answer, right Jerome? Um, but I believe the starting place to address that issue, or, or, or the place that we have to go, is the last verse in Ephesians that we're going to hit on today, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. I believe that's a great starting place to 
show how do we do that? How do we have or live unified in Christ in the midst of a time of cultural disunity? Again, verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 2, remember this part, remember 16 and 17, deals with our reconciliation, our unity to God. Remember the, the previous verses dealt with our unity and reconciliation to man. But in this section of Ephesians 16 and 17, it deals with our reconciliation to God. And in this verse, Paul is quoting Isaiah 57, 19, when he says in 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Paul, when he says that, he's quoting Isaiah 57, 19. And Isaiah 57, 19, it deals with God restoring peace between himself and the nation of, of Israel, or particularly an individual who he had struck down for doing, guess what, not idolatry, he struck this individual down for not idolatry, but for the iniquity of his unjust gain. This is, that's Isaiah 15, uh, 57, verse 17. The one who God has struck down, who he's later going to say in Isaiah 57, 19, peace, peace to those who are far near. He's talking about an individual who was struck down by God because of his unjust gain. Remember the justice series. Remember how I said that justice is so near to the heart of God. It wasn't just idolatry. It's because this person had this unjust gain and God has struck him down, made him sick. And all these people are mourning about him because he's now been struck down by God. But then God later has mercy on this individual and says in Isaiah 57, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. This is what Paul is quoting here in Ephesians 2.17. He is quoting Isaiah, and he's quoting peace with God. Now, the question you may ask, how does this help us to live as one in Christ? Or how does that help us to live in unity as Christ? Well, if you notice that in verse 17, Paul is showing that basically both Jew and Gentile both need the peace of God in their relationship because he said that and he came and preached peace to those who were far meaning the Gentile meaning they also needed peace with God but then he says and he came to preach peace to those who were near meaning the Jewish person who was also um, who, who worshiped the true and living God so what Paul is showing that both Jew and Gentile those far from God and near to God they both have the same need and that is peace with God so Paul is he, he he's finishing his his his, his argument here by showing that both of you guys, Jew and Gentile, both need reconciliation with God. Both of you need the blood of Jesus to make you right with God. Both of you are separated from God because of your sin. So both of you need the cross. And that is where we ultimately find our commonality. We find our commonality and understanding that both of us all of us, whether I'm Republican or Democrat Christian, whether I'm a Blue Lives Christian or a Black Lives Christian, we all need the blood of Jesus to cover us. We all need Christ. And that has to ultimately be our main focus, our main thing. Yes, we still have to work through those other issues. Like I mentioned, we still have in-house issues that we have to work through, but our main thing must be the main thing. And that is that we need Jesus Christ and we need his blood to restore, restore peace 
between us and God. And that, that commonality, that bond should bind us. That should keep us tied together. Despite our differences, we understand that we all need the blood of Jesus. And that should keep us. And that is Paul's point here. That you Gentile, you Jew, both of you guys, all of us need peace with God. And all of us need the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And guess what? We got to strive to keep that unity of peace. Because all of these other distractions will come in and try to rip us and tear us apart. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, he says, Being diligent or striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Meaning it is going to be hard. Because guess what? I don't think like some of you think. I, I don't see issues how you see so it's going to be hard because I'm, I see things one way, you see things one way. But despite that, we got to strive and work like hard, work like crazy to stay unified through the Spirit and the bond of peace. We have to work at that. It's not just going to come easily. Remember, we're a family. We talked about that. Inside a family, there are squabbles, there are issues, there are arguments. We are one unit in Christ, but we got to work through these other issues. Understanding that it is the blood of Jesus that covers us all. Understanding the reason that we are in the same family is because of the blood of Jesus. And that has to be our main foundation. That has to be the thing that keeps us binded together. Understanding that it is because of his blood that we are now brothers and sisters. It's because of his blood that we now have victory through um, over sin. It, it is all Christ that has to be our unifying event, brothers and sisters. That is how we're going to keep unity and not let all of these other people come into the family and cause divisions. Remember, as I mentioned last week, you don't have to stay in the Gentile court anymore. You don't have to stay in your little political parties anymore, understanding this, that you can go beyond the Gentile court. Remember that? Remember that the Gentile court was outside of the temple. The objective was not to remain in the Gentile court. The objective was to go in the inner places of the court where God is, and we have that access, and that is where we want to spend our time, not in our Gentile courts. We spend it with God. We spend it with each other there in Christ. We find our unity there. We open up our tables to one another. We go and have common fellowship with one another. We, we talk about Jesus. We go and we tell people about Jesus because we believe that maybe this is another brother or sister in Christ who I could fellowship with, who I could praise God with. We, we think about those things as we live on this life. As to the victory that we have through Christ, brothers and sisters. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other, man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God. You are so good. Thank you for bringing, even here today, all the different groups from different backgrounds, ethnicities, nations, God, to this place to worship you, Lord God. We thank you for the unity that we find in you, Christ. We thank you for cleansing us by your blood, that we stand righteous before you, God, because of the blood of your Son. Not of the works that we have done, but all you, Jesus. That is why we praise your name. Help us, Lord God, to keep that thought at the front of our mind, Lord God. The front of our mind, especially in this crazy climate that we're living in, Lord. May we remember our common bond in you, God. And may that outweigh any other differences that we have, Lord God. We thank you for your glory, for giving us life. Glorify your name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.